You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. What an intro, that was. I'm in between. That was like a wrestling intro. It was great. Amazing. Um, I wonder, why don't we just stand just before we get started and... Um, it's always really tempting, isn't it, where we have a great time of worship, we have some notices, and then there's a preach, and we kind of get our phones out and maybe make some notes or maybe browse Facebook, and we kind of forget that we can still be worshiping God, we can still be accessing the presence of God and accessing the Holy Spirit while we're hearing a preach, hopefully. Um, so I just want to pray for us, just as a lot of us have had busy weeks, probably going to have a busy day with two carol services. Um, God, I just want to invite your presence into this room now. God, we just want to be sponges for your Holy Spirit, God. We just want to know what it's like to have full relationship with you. We want to just experience our Father this morning. So God, would you just fill this room? Would you... Um, take away worries, anxieties that are in our minds? Would we just be able to focus on you? We just invite your presence now. God, I thank you that you're here. Why don't you take, why don't you take your seats? So it's up to me uh, to finish this series on Utopia. Uh, I've absolutely loved it. Um, we've just had an opportunity to look at a book that often as church we're, we're scared to tackle. Um, maybe it's a bit controversial sometimes, maybe it's just a bit complicated and confusing, but I hope you've realized that Revelation is a book full of amazing wisdom, full of guidance for us now, and massively relevant to us now. Um, We've heard that Utopia is a person, the the person of Jesus, Um, but actually... Utopia is described in Revelation as a physical city that, that will one day come down um, from heaven. And I'm kind of going to, wanting to go there today. Um, if you've been to a Redeemer for any length of time, even if it's your first time today and you've spoken to Pete, um, you might be forgiven for thinking that we already live in utopia. <laughs> I mean, London, London is the best city in the world, right? Yeah. I mean, I could just sit down now. (laughs) Um, Those of you that know me know I I love a good fact, so I think I should always start a preach with some facts. Um, So last year, London attracted 16 million visitors, making it the most visited city in the world. It has 72 billionaires living in it, the most of any city in the world. Over 300 languages are spoken in London, and a fifth, this is my favorite one, a fifth of all the gold of all the world's governments is under the streets of London, about 248 billions worth. I can see some of you looking under your seats. It's it's not (laughs) under there. London's economy is the size of Sweden's, a whole country, and is a fifth of the UK's GDP. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Great city. But we don't have to look far to realize that we're not actually in utopia. I'm sorry about that, Pete. I don't see many of the 72 billionaires sitting in front of of me. 
In fact, 27% of London residents live in poverty compared to 20% in the rest of the country. Wage inequality is three times that of the rest of the country. About 9,500 people each year die from illness related to pollution. 48,000 people live in temporary housing, which is three times the rest of England combined. We live in an amazing city, probably the best in the world, but it doesn't take a deep scratch on the surface to realize that the city we live in is actually very broken. And especially more recently, we've seen it pretty shaken. We've heard that these letters to the churches weren't just written to churches that existed thousands of years ago. They're also written to encourage and challenge us now, where we are now. Each letter is ended with, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's all of us. This week we're going to look at Revelation 3.7 and the letter to the church in Philadelphia. The church in Philadelphia was actually in a pretty similar context to us. It was a great city. It had many great qualities. It was on an important trade route um, through the Near East. And it was benefited greatly from Greek culture. And it was surrounded by extremely rich, fertile land for growing wine. Sounds pretty good. But it was also extremely broken. In AD 17, the city had been shaken by a massive earthquake. And the following years, it had been crippled by relentless aftershocks. So much so that Tiberius, the emperor at the time, gave tax breaks to the city in order for the residents to repair it and keep up with building the wall again and again and again. Strabo, a Greek geographer that was contemporary um, to to the time, wrote, The walls never cease being cracked, and different parts of the city are constantly suffering damage. That is why the actual town has few inhabitants, but the majority live as farmers in the surrounding land. This is a city that was physically broken, but actually the people, the inhabitants, were actually broken as well. Um, The Christians were severely persecuted by the Jewish citizens, and it was the center of the cult of Dionysius, I knew I'd say that wrong, a Greek god of fertility and wine where people would worship him with acts of sexual immorality and effectively just getting high. This was not a healthy city. And the letter we're going to look at today is one of hope and access. Firstly, we're going to hear about how Jesus holds the keys to utopia. Secondly, that through an open door, we can access the presence of God. And finally, that we get to look forward to a perfect city. And we'll see what that means for us today. So I'm just going to read Revelations 3.7. It should come up on the screen. Uh, 3.7 to 12 says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, "These These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, 
I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come to the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So first of all, I want to look at this idea of Jesus as the key holder. It says at the start that um, these are the words of him who is holy of true, who holds the key of David. What is the key? Um, We all know that our keys are quite unique to us. If you're anything like me, you've got a number of keys that you forgot what they were for about five years ago, but somehow are still on your keys. Or maybe you've got a key ring that you bought when you went to Spain 10 years ago, and somehow you love it so much that it stays on your keys. I mean, personally, I've got a Stormtrooper key cover on mine. That's pretty cool. It's really cool. Don't listen to that. Can I get an amen? Thank you. In the same way, the keys that Jesus holds in this passage are unique to him. Um, but what are the, the keys, keys of David? The Holy One and True holds the key. The Holy One and True One holds the keys. That is Jesus. The keys of David are mentioned only one other, in only one other place in the Bible. Um, in Isaiah 22, Isaiah prophesies that a man named Eliakim would receive the key of David. Isaiah 22, 20 to 22 says, In that day I will summon my servant, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the people of Judah. I will place on his shoulders the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. So what do we learn about the keys here? Well, we don't know for certain if these keys are an artifact, a physical set of keys, or whether they're just a metaphor for the transfer of power to Eliakim. Keys at the time were literally carried over someone's shoulder. It wasn't something you could just fit in your pocket. Um, But what we do know for certain is that he who carries the keys has the authority to open and close what no one else can. Eliakim was given the role of gatekeeper with the power to control entry into the royal palace. His authority was second only to the king. Importantly, it was him that would have the power to grant authority, it had the authority to grant access to, to the king. In the same way, the passage suggests that Jesus only can grant access to God. In verse 9, we hear that the Christian Jews had been, pers- had been persecuted by the non-Christian Jews and told that they didn't have this access to God. They told they were cut off from God. They couldn't reach him. They didn't have the key. John turns us on his head here. He, he assures them that Christ has granted them access to the presence of God and that no one can deprive them of it. Jesus says, doesn't he? He says he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one can get to God except through him. Jesus has used the keys to grant the access that no one else is allowed to grant. The door is open. It's up to us to walk through it and enjoy that access that Jesus has won for us. 
And I'd encourage you, maybe you've been coming to Redeemer for a while and you've been, you've been seeing that people seem to understand who God is. They seem to have relationship with God. And you've been kind of like, how do, we, how do I get there? Well, it's through Jesus. It's through what Jesus has done on the cross um, that we get to have the access to God. Adam stole a part of my preach when he read Isaiah 9, 6 to 7 at the start. We kind of hear it, don't we, a lot at this time of year. But it's just an amazing passage. Um, I'm going to read it again just because it's, it's great. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time and forever. As we go into Christmas, um, it's worth us remembering that this is why Jesus came. He came to rule, and verse three and seven, verse seven is just affirming what he that what he came to do, he has completed. But it wasn't just a simple transfer of power. It wasn't just him getting a new job. We heard earlier, didn't we, that the cost was great, that the, the baby that we're going to hear about over the next few weeks came to suffer and die so that he could grant us access to God. I just think that's amazing. Secondly, the open door. What is the open door? Verse 8 says... Um, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Um, but again, what is this door that, that the keys have opened? It's easy to look at this verse and think of the door as a metaphor for maybe um, evangelistic opportunity or opportunities to preach the gospel, as you often hear in the New Testament when Paul writes in his letters about traveling around. He describes an open door of God allowing him to go into a country. Um, I don't think that that is what that John is saying here in the letter. I think it's much more in tune with the Old Testament metaphors. John is getting a vital message across to the church that Christ is the key of David, and he opens the door for the church, his royal priesthood, to enter the presence of God. Christ has granted us access to his presence, and no one can deprive us of that. Even in our darkest hours, we can cling to the knowledge that the door to the very presence of God is open to us. The key in Revelation does so much more than grant us access to some national king. It grants us access to the presence of God, his kingdom, and eternal life. Not only does Christ open the door, he is the door to the kingdom. He doesn't bring something outside of himself. He is the way. I find myself often getting frustrated and forgetting about the access um, that I have to God. Maybe I feel on a Sunday when we have a great time of worship like we've just had, and I get a sense that God is here. I feel like the room is full of him. Um, I think we're convinced as Christians that it's good and right for us to read our Bible every day um, and to shoot for that. And, And it is, don't get me wrong. But I wonder how different would our experience of God look if we daily spent time with him, using this open access to him. If we spent time just waiting on him, listening to him speak to us, 
What about just enjoying him? How often do we just enjoy being with God? A little while ago, we had a guy called Chris Kandaya um, from Home for Good come here. And I love the picture he shared of John F. Kennedy and his son. Um, John, John F. Kennedy's son, here's the picture. It's cool, isn't it? John F. Kennedy's son would come and just hang out in the Oval Office um, while JFK was doing his work. And I love that this picture of what relationship with God looks like. This is what it's like when we come into the presence of God. We don't have to approach him like I'm sure dignitaries and politicians would have approached the president in the Oval Office. But instead, we come into his presence like his sons or daughters. JFK Jr. here had open access to the president of the United States of America. In the same way, we have direct access to the presence of God. We can hear his voice. We can seek his guidance, as I'm sure JFK Jr. did um, to his dad. But we can just enjoy being with one another. This picture here, JFK Jr. is just playing with his car while JFK works. I'm sure they didn't say much to each other. I'm sure they just enjoyed being in each other's presence. And of course, there will be a day when we can do this uninterrupted, a future kingdom where we can have unbroken relationship with God. So this new kingdom, what is it? I said at the start that this passage is full of hope. Um, The Christians in Philadelphia were in a pretty hopeless time. They were massively persecuted. The city they lived in wasn't even safe to be a part of. It says in verse 8 that they had little strength. I mean, could you, be, could you believe being known for, being, for having little strength? They were pretty desperate. Um, their city was shaken, but God in his goodness ends the passage with a promise. He promises the Christians in a broken city, a brand new one, a utopia, a city that will come down from heaven itself. Not only this, but the city to to come would be built with Christians at the center of it. The the weak, low Christians are going to be made structural to the city. It's a massive fulfillment of of the verse, the weak will be made strong. They're to be made pillars. Not only this, but they're promised to be made part of the structure of the most holy place in the most holy city ever, the temple. God's saying to them, look around you, guys. Look around you. The city you live in is broken. You're weak, but I will grant you access to my new city. Not only that, but I'll make you a part of its structure. Maybe at the moment you feel like you're just weak. You're just at the end. It's getting to the end of what's been a pretty tough year. And you look around you and you see that your city is pretty broken. God is promising you a place in the city, and no matter how you feel, he's using you to build it. On top of that, Christ has promised to write three names on the believer, as it says at the end of the passage, verse 12. The name of God, the name of Jerusalem, the name of the new Jerusalem, and Christ's new name. Ancient pillars would have the names of the people they honored inscribed on them. The metaphor means that God has chosen to honor and bless his people. But in what way? First, the believer will have God's name. In the Old Testament, God repetitively told the priests to pronounce specific blessings on Israel. 
Numbers 6, 27, um, says, so they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. We have his blessings because we have his name and we carry his identity because we have his name. But he doesn't just go around putting it on anyone. People don't just give their name away. We're constantly seeing the news, companies suing other companies for misusing their name. I think God's a little bit more protective of his, of his name than maybe Coca-Cola or McDonald's. God is even more protective, and he chooses to permanently inscribe it on weak, flawed Christians that choose to follow him. Names carry weight. The biggest punishment so far for Philip Green, who messed up BHS's pension, is to take away his knighthood. They took away his name of Sir. He's, the, um, the name of God isn't just a skin-deep title. It's... It comes with blessing, and it comes with authority as well. Second, um, he's going to name us with the city of God, the new Jerusalem. It's a symbolic way of saying that the believer, the Christian, has citizenship in God's, common, God's spiritual commonwealth. Hebrews 12:22 says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. Sounds pretty good, right? I could go there. That sounds good. You have citizenship. We're hearing a lot at the moment of people that are worried whether their natural earthly citizenship is up for grabs, whether they'll still have it in a couple of years. Maybe you look around you and you just feel like you don't belong to London or you don't belong to where you're at, your circumstances. God is making you a promise. He's saying, even though your circumstances are all over the place, I'm granting you citizenship into my, into my heavenly city. C.S. Lewis says, if I find myself in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Don't worry if you feel like you don't feel like you quite fit. It's because you don't. (laughs) Your citizenship is elsewhere. Our home is yet to come. Thirdly, the the believer is to have Christ's new name. This is a bit of a mystery, um, what this is. Perhaps it refers to a future full revelation of Christ, which can't really be grasped until we're glorified in heaven. Maybe it's just one for later on. But isn't it amazing that... Everything we know through history of God now, the glory of God now, what the Bible says about the authority in God's name now, the authority in Jesus' name now, isn't the end point. There's still even more to come. God has more for us than we can even fathom. That's exciting. I'm looking forward to that. In the same way as the, Philadelphi- as the Philadelphians, we can look around our city and we can see that it's shaken. I mean, I just mentioned a few stats earlier, but that's only the, the, the surface. For those that don't know, um, I'm a lawyer in the city, and it's been really interesting recently to see how the past year has affected people. Um, the things that keep the city of London ticking over are political stability and financial stability. Your own politics aside, those two pillars of our city have undeniably been shaken over the past year. Um, 
the people in our city in many ways have lost hope in the things that they could traditionally rely on. But we as Christians can wait in anticipation of a new city, a utopia that the Philadelphians were promised. Hebrews 12, again, and 27 to 29 says, Once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. We're getting a city that cannot be shaken. Isn't that just an amazing promise that um, even though our lives can look completely shaken to bits right now, that God has just shaken away created things. He's shaken away superficial things to allow the things that cannot be shaken, the solid things of God, to remain. But that shouldn't just be where we leave it, a nice, fuzzy feeling that even though things are pretty rubbish, we'll eventually jump ship to somewhere better. We're part of this city now, And that means two things. Firstly, I feel challenged that in this vacuum of hope that's kind of around at the moment, that as Christians, we need to rise to that. We need to take up that opportunity. If there's any time people are feeling hopeless, it's often leading up to Christmas, ironically. But I want to challenge us, church. I want to challenge us. Do we really believe that we we have the answer? Do we really believe that we have hope? in our conversations with our friends? Does it reflect that? Are we positive? Are we like, guys, come on, there's more to come? Or do we kind of just say, oh, yeah, it's what Theresa May doing at the moment? <laughs> our conversations should reflect the hope that we have. It's up to us to communicate it because no, no one else will. But we're not just left on our, our own to use good words to communicate the hope that we have. We can prove the hope that we have using the tools of the future city. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, I want, to, I want to remind us that the door to the kingdom is open. We have access to the presence of God. Doors are very rarely one way, and this door is no different. Not only do we have access to his presence, but we have access to the kingdom now as well. The church in Philadelphia was weak as it says in verse 8, but John identified that they were actually powerful. They had access to the future kingdom of God right now. We might struggle in this world, in our, in our current city. Um, we might have to battle with its brokenness on a day-to-day basis, but we're given the tools to grapple with it. The open door allows things to go both ways. We can use the tools of the future kingdom now, in this church, we often see people healed. We, we often hear words from God. Um, or even if you just bring joy and peace in your surroundings, that's proof of the city to come. We can use glimpses of the future city to prove it's coming. I mean, thank God that he doesn't just leave us here on our own to wait out that future city. It's not just about waiting for the bus to get there. He brands us with his name. He allows us to spend time in his presence. And he uses us to build this city now. It feels like it would um, be doing a bit of a disservice to what I've been talking about if we didn't just spend time in God's presence today. 
if we didn't just pray into God as wanting what God is wanting to see in this city. Um, so I don't know if Sam and the band would like to come back up, but I would just, I just love us to respond in, in maybe a few ways. Um, first of all, this point of access, maybe you feel like you don't really know what it's like to, to be in the presence of God. Maybe when I, was, when I was chatting about that, you were confused and you were like, well, but what does it actually feel like? I'd love people to get around you today, if that's something that you desire to know, to pray that you would understand and, and experience today the, the presence of God. It's powerful, it's wonderful, it's life-changing. Um, so I, I would love us to, to pray for that. Secondly, maybe um, you're in the city, maybe in your workplace, in your home circumstances, this this idea of using the tools of the future kingdom to battle the kingdom now. Maybe you would love a fresh kind of um, energy to communicate the hope that you have to people in your, in your circumstances. I'd love, it. I'd love us to gather around you today and just, and just pray over you, just commission you to go out. Um, it's a big job. Um, it's a lot to communicate, and I think we can only do that with, with the anointing of God. So in a moment, I'll get us to stand, and, and we, we can do that. This, thirdly, I felt like there's people here today that maybe feel disconnected from the city that they live in. Maybe you hear the stats about um, GDP and gold under the, under the, uh, the floor of billionaires coming out of every door. And your experience just doesn't match that. Maybe you feel like you've just been completely excluded out of the city. Um, I'd love us to pray for you today. I'd love for us to speak over you this citizenship that you have in God's kingdom, that even though your circumstances are not what they should be, that, we can, that you can look forward to this future kingdom. So why don't we stand just if you can and... Um, Let's just wait. Let's just wait and see what God wants to do. Let's just enjoy his presence. Let's just ask him to to fill the room now. God, I just pray for your Holy Spirit to fill this room. I thank you that so far we've already just been impacted by the power of your presence this morning. We just pray for more. Thank you, Lord God. We love your presence, Lord.